Good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you made it through the longest night of the year. Do you know that? Yeah, that was last night. And uh, what better way to, I don't know, reward ourselves with some choir joy. Uh, really, thanks to Zach and the choir. Also, like to the best backing band a choir could have. Like, yeah. these guys are holding it down. Yeah. Uh, it's Advent season for us, which is a slow and thoughtful way to make our way toward Christmas. And I'll say a little bit more about uh, the way that we've been making our way toward Christmas in a moment. Uh, but I want to tell you about a couple things going on as we make our way toward Christmas Eve and the break after that. So let's make sure that this is on your calendar and you're ready for it. Today is the 22nd, which means that Christmas Eve is just two days away on the 24th. And so our Christmas Eve gatherings are going to happen at 5 p.m. and 11 p.m. These are candlelight gatherings, which is its own really sort of sacred moment for us as a community. Uh, we'd love to welcome you, your family, your friends. Uh, you might have a neighbor who doesn't want to be alone that day, and this might be a place where they could have some family. So join us. Uh, the only difference between the 5 and the 11 is that the 5 has infant and toddler child care, and the 11 p.m. doesn't, but we'd love to welcome you at either. And then when we get to Christmas Eve, when we, when we head out of here that night, we're locking the doors, and we're taking a communal break for a moment. We're giving volunteers and staff and everyone a chance to just sort of uh, end the year with some rest before we make it to the new year. So there's no gatherings happening here on the 26th and the 29th of December. No Thursday, no Sunday. Uh, however, if you want to be with a Christian community on Sunday the 29th, do it. There's amazing churches all over the city. And in fact, if you subscribe to our email newsletter, we're going to use uh, a, the email to point you towards some kindred community that you could be with on Sunday the 29th. And then we're back together uh, for our first gatherings of the new year on January 2 and 5. And I'm really excited about these gatherings. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about World and where we're showing up in other places later. Uh, but we've developed a bit of a friendship with a church in Belfast, Northern Ireland called Redeemer Central. And on January 2nd and 5th, uh, we're going to have Dave Armstrong, who's the leader of that community, here with us in our gatherings. So you'll have a chance to hear from him directly. And you might be inspired or encouraged just to find out that there's like uh, something like-minded and some sort of shared spirit uh, in that community in the middle of Belfast and in what we're a part of here. So Dave will be here. And then the other thing about that gathering is it'll be our first Eucharist of the new year. And it's always uh, special for us to come around Jesus's table together. And we'd love to welcome you at that table. So that's the schedule. And then I want to remind you really briefly about our Christmas offering because I'm gonna say a lot more about it later. So briefly, I'll just say this. Uh, Christmas offering is a way for us to reflect the generosity of God that we celebrate in this season. And uh, we've uh, intended every year that that offering will sort of line up with our sense of calling in the world. And so for a church that calls itself a community of grace and peace for our city and the world, we wanna use some of that money to resource this community, some of that money to resource needs in our city, and some of that money to resource needs in the world. So you've heard us talk about how a little bit of that will go to support our general fund. Uh, because in 2019, uh, we grew in the number of people that we serve, and we added kids space to help serve uh, more people. And we're really grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, but like the rent grew, and some other costs grew because of that, but our giving didn't grow. So we're gonna use some of the Christmas offering to help bridge that gap. We're also gonna use Christmas offering to help fund the expansion of restorative justice circles in South Bend schools. Uh, you heard a lot about that a couple weeks ago. It's a chance for us uh, to get behind uh, maybe a better way of helping students and teachers uh, in community. Uh, we're also gonna use some of the money uh, to add a lift 
uh, to make the second floor accessible for everyone, whether it's the kids' space or the team room or the, the mez balcony here where students hang out on Sunday nights. Uh, it seems really important to us that anybody can make their way to that part of our space. So all that's going on uh, for World. Uh, one piece of that is we would like to continue supporting World Vision and their very important work working with refugees in crisis around the world, uh, especially refugees that have been made vulnerable by the Syrian war. Um, it's a problem that was all over the news earlier, it, things haven't abated. We hear less about it now, but the need persists, and we would like to help them show up there. So that's a little bit of Christmas offering. Uh, if you want to give to that, just write Christmas on your check, or you can go online and select Christmas 2019. Uh, that being said, I'll let our greeters pass some baskets around, and I want to turn the corner toward uh, the last week of Advent and the, the journey that we've been on with the prophet Isaiah as he helps us prepare for what Christmas means. Uh, as a bit of a reminder, because I feel like we've I was going to say we've been through a lot, but it's a reference to my own sermons, so I hope it feels like, I don't know, I we've been through a lot, but <laughs> we've grappled with a lot together here, right? We began the Advent season uh, along with Jesus communities all over the world hearing the words of Isaiah 2, and Isaiah 2 speaks uh, of a promising moment where swords will be turned into plowshares, which is uh, this beautiful idea that the very instruments of violence that have wounded us and that we have used to wound one another, the very instruments of violence will be transformed into instruments of peace. Not that we'll simply lay aside our instruments of violence, the things that have been used against us and the things that we've been used against each other, but that, that, that those very instruments will be transformed. And we, we also propose the possibility that if you're wondering how it is that the things that have been used against you or the things that you have used against other people, if you're wondering how it is that those would be transformed, I think Jesus is a reliable guide for that because somehow in his wisdom and in his life, he took uh, perhaps the most heinous instrument of violence that human beings have come up with, a sadistic, torturous device called a cross designed not just to inflict pain and suffering on the person who hangs on it, but on the community that's terrorized by it. He somehow took that and through his life and his death and his resurrection transformed that into a sign of peace. Like so much so that people around the world wear it around their neck as a sign of peace. And people who go into hard places sometimes carry it as a banner for peace. And sometimes hospitals have it uh, in their logo as a sign of, of peace. So if you're wondering how it is that the things that have been used against you or the things that you have used against others, your words, your body, your power, your voice, if you're, if you're wondering how it might be transformed, I think Jesus is a good guide for that. Second week, uh, we turn to Isaiah 11. We heard there uh, that strange sort of promise about the stump of Jesse, which refers to that Davidic dynasty, that line of kings that the Israelites were hoping for. And we heard that image of the peaceable kingdom, that strange and beautiful picture of wolves and lambs lying down together, of those made vulnerable being vulnerable no more, even in the presence of those who made them vulnerable, even in the presence of the predators. We talked about that artist, Edward Hicks. If you were here, you remember, we looked at that Quaker art from the late 1700s and how Hicks, obsessed with this image, uh, was working out his hope by painting like 62 renditions of that image of the peaceable kingdom. And you might remember, we, we heard from art critics that observed that as Hicks continued to paint that scene later and later in his life, the, animal, the animals that he painted grew weary in their look. He actually painted a weariness into their facial expressions as his life moved on. And I think for a lot of us that rang true because some of us are weary, like weary of hoping. It just um, feels, to quote a friend of mine, like the pessimists have all the facts 
Have you ever felt that way? The cynics have all the data on their side. It can feel that way. We observe too that in that prophetic text, um, that between an early picture of the character of Jesus in that chapter, and then that picture of, of the peaceable kingdom, there's something between the two, which is a disruption. Because the prophet describes um, that it's like in his blood to set things right. That, like, that the word of his mouth will be like a rod that sort of breaks the things that are breaking the world to set things right. And perhaps some of us who are tired of waiting for things to be made right are, have been waiting because we've been unwilling to say yes to the disruption that comes when God arrives. And sometimes there's a disruption in the status quo that we're actually attached to. And we think we want a different scenario or a different reality, but we don't even realize that we're the ones holding on to the way things are because it might be disruptive to let go of the way things are to embrace the way that we want them to be. Last week, uh, we worked with Isaiah, but we started in, in Matthew 11. And that's that moment when John the Baptist uh, sends his followers to Jesus. Uh, John had been out there in the wilderness preaching, return. He'd been out there preaching, saying, we have become what we were not meant to be. We have gone to places we were not meant to go. And he's saying, we need, to, we need to come back to who we are. So in Matthew 3, he's preaching that. And Jesus shows up on the scene at John's baptizing. And John says to Jesus, I think you're uh, higher on the org chart in this project that I'm a part of. And so he recognizes Jesus. But by Matthew 11, John is actually starting to give up on Jesus. So he sends his friends to ask him, are you the one that we were looking for? Because sometimes the arrival of God is inconclusive. <laughs> You might think the arrival of God would be emphatic, dramatic, like big and important, but sometimes the arrival of God is inconclusive. So John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, and Jesus responds with that Isaiah text from chapter 35. And that's the one that has that strange language about the wilderness being turned into green and verdant valleys. And we, we discovered as we sort of worked with the text that Isaiah 35, by most modern scholars, is placed in the context of exile. But Isaiah 35 is a word for people who want to come home and get back to who they are here to be. But when they look out on the path of return, it seems menacing. Like the path of return has dangers lurking within it. The path of return seems inhospitable. Like I'm not sure I have what it takes or can make it from where I am to where I'm supposed to be. And the prophet Isaiah in that moment speaks and says, don't you know that that desert wasteland will become like a verdant valley? It may be difficult to return to who you are but that if you decide to do so, the path of return will be paved with unexpected graces. That's Jesus' answer to John, whose own message was return. We need to get back to who we are. And then there's that strange turn in Matthew 11 where after answering John's disciples, Jesus says something else, right? That's that moment when he says, who did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed in the wind? Did you go out there to see somebody like dressed in fine clothes like in a king's palace? This is strange, but we, we learned last week that King Herod, the puppet king who governed the Israelite part of the Roman Empire, that that puppet king had chosen the reed as the symbol of his kingdom. So he's talking to the people about John and what's happening with John and himself. And then he refers to the temptation that when you decide it's time to get back to who we are, when we need to return to who we are, the temptation implicit in that desire to put all of our hope in the politics of the current moment for them to base all their hope on who's in the palace. His name is Herod, but maybe for us there's also a temptation that though politics is incredibly important, that how we use our power, the voice we have, the vote that we have in the world, I think is incredibly important. But in spite of that importance, there's this awareness that our hope had better run deeper than the politics of the current moment. 
and that we don't need the politics of the current moment for us to say yes to being who we are and doing what we are here for right now. So this has been our way of uh, hoping our way through Advent. And then today, uh, the text that the church turns to around the world is Isaiah 7. So I want to share Isaiah 7 with you, and we're going to work it out together. Let's jump in. Isaiah 7, uh, verses 10 through 16. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. Amen? Maybe. I don't know. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it's a strange passage, right? It's the kind of passage that if it just gets like dropped into the liturgy, like if you're just like cruising through your Sunday morning and then the reader stands up and reads about Ahaz and curds and honey and like a baby, like it's just a little bit bizarre, right? Well, there's part of this passage that sounds uh, familiar. There's one little verse uh, that has been sort of grabbed by Christians for 2,000 years and brought forward into their experience of Jesus to help them think about the meaning of Jesus. This is the part that might sound familiar. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, so it shows up like embroidered and like on Christmas cards and stuff like that, right? And Christmas carols. It even shows up in pop songs. Like classic Christmas hits like this one, right? You guys know this? Yeah, right? This is Handel's Messiah, one of the great Christmas albums of history. And this is one of the verses that Handel grabs and brings forward into that legendary work of Christmas art. So, like, so this is one of those pieces that has had... Uh, sort of itself wrapped up in Christian meaning and interpretation for 2,000 years. But here's the thing. A principle that we've tried to get our hands on repeatedly as a church is the idea that if you want to know what a text means, you should figure out what it meant. Just that. If you want to know what a text means, you should ask what it meant. Right? These texts come from places and people and circumstances. And Isaiah 7 comes from people and places and circumstances. And if we want to know how Isaiah 7 is helping us prepare for Jesus and for Christmas, we could ask some questions about what it meant. And by the way, asking what a text meant before you work out what it means is a really important way of avoiding biblical malpractice. <laughs> right? And sometimes preaching is like biblical malpractice when we don't do the work of figuring out what it meant and we just arbitrarily try to decide what it means, right? So let's do a little bit of work on what Isaiah 7 would have meant uh, roughly 800 years before Jesus when the text was first committed to a page. So we're 800 years before Jesus, and uh, the Israelite kingdom has been divided in two. So the Israelite people all came together, all 12 tribes, under King Saul. And then after King Saul, you had King David. And after King David, you had King Solomon. And during that period, this kingdom held together all 12 tribes, one big nation. But however, Solomon's son Rehoboam has a hard time holding some factions together. It seems that some of the northern Israelite tribes are having beef with some of the southern Israelite tribes. And it has to do with some economic feelings of inequality or government policy that are causing these divisions to be felt. And Rehoboam deals with it sort of tactlessly, and it leads to the division of the kingdom. So now instead of one united kingdom, you have two kingdoms that have been split. 
You have uh, what's then called Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and then Judah, the southern kingdom. And Judah includes Jerusalem as its headquarters. And now at the time that Isaiah is speaking, roughly eight centuries before Christ, you've got uh, Isaiah in Jerusalem as a sort of prophet in the king's courts, as a prophet at the center of power. And he's having this dialogue with King Ahaz, and Ahaz has a problem. Ahaz has a problem, yeah. The problem that he's got is he's got not one, but two enemies coming at him. Two enemies that have formed an alliance. They're breathing down his neck with a military threat. Now, tragically, perhaps, one of the enemies coming at him is the other part of the kingdom that was split. So these are in some ways like their own people who are coming at him, but he's got them and somebody else threatening to take out their kingdom and to defeat them militarily. You ever have a day when you feel like everything's coming at you? It's not enough to have one enemy, you've got two. It's not enough that somebody from outside the family is against you, somebody inside the family is against you as well. Like you ever, you ever have the day when uh, the taxes are due and they're more than you expected and then the water heater breaks down and then your kid comes home and forgot to tell you that there were fees associated with their intramural commitments? Anybody been there? You ever had a day? <laughs> yes, sir. You ever had a day when the boss is just riding you and then you get the phone call from the client and it feels like they're in cahoots because they're both against you? Seems like on the same side. You ever had a day when like, like mental health is a struggle and you just can't hold it together and then all of the triggers come together at the exact same time and you just feel like it's you against the world? Well, Ahaz has a similar situation. It's like him against the world. And the prophet has come to him to talk to him about this. And the invitation of the prophet is that in this moment when it feels like it's you against the world, you, you, you could open your heart up to the possibility of faith, but it's a very vulnerable move, right? You, you could decide that the way that you're gonna navigate this is to, is to open yourself rather than close yourself. And he's got a choice to make. So let me work back through this with you. Let's go back to Isaiah 7 and read this again. So again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, the king, saying, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Sheol here is the place of the dead. This is a sort of literary device to suggest that like the entire span of possibilities from the lowest to the highest, from the left to the right, anything you want or can imagine, just ask for it. Ask for it to know that like, you're gonna be okay if you trust God in this really difficult circumstance. And then Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now this sounds pious, doesn't it? Sounds very proper, like, oh no, my, my faith is so strong, I wouldn't, I wouldn't test God. But that's not what's going on here. What he's saying is, I don't wanna open myself up to the possibility of God in this moment because that feels vulnerable in a way that I'm not looking for. He's, he's on the side, by the way, he's working out an alliance with the Assyrians. He's thinking that that's gonna be the way that he's gonna manage this problem on his own, not realizing that that's gonna be a very bad move and the Assyrians are gonna be the very vessel that God uses to wipe all this out. But we'll, that's like another episode later in the series. But, but he's, he's like, I, I, don't, I don't wanna open myself up to the possibility of God having a part to play in this. And so I'm gonna lock this thing down on my own. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna move in the direction that you're calling me to. This explains uh, why Isaiah then says what he says. Uh, next slide. Hear then, O house of David. It's a way of speaking to the king in the lineage of David, right? Hear then, house of David. Is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. That last line, there was a reference to those two enemies that are coming against him. And the prophet says, that's going to be dealt with. And he says, the sign that you're going to get, the sign, the, the promise, the symbol, the, the down payment on God's faithfulness, you ready? It's going to be a baby. Does that sound stupid to you? It sounds stupid to me. It sounds unbelievably insignificant and naive. It sounds foolish. It sounds laughable. There's like an absurdity built into this moment. This guy has two military powers coming against him. He's responsible for the sanctity of Jerusalem and the protection of his people. And by the way, his own life. Because when the king and his people lose, who's the first person to lose their life? The king, right? He's got all of this coming against him. And naturally, he wants solutions that seem commensurate with the problems. Wouldn't you? He's got two military superpowers coming against him. I think naturally, he... He wants to work out the equation on his own, and he wants a solution on the same scale as the problems that he faces, and he wants a solution perhaps in the same form as the problems that he faces. So with two military powers coming against him, he's reaching out to another military power called the Assyrians, thinking this is how we're going to get through this, rather than this other thing, this absurd and naive thing, which is open yourself up to faith, to the possibility that the equation is more than meets the eye, that there are factors here that you could be vulnerable toward, that you could open yourself up to, that will change this in ways that you cannot expect. And Ahaz is having a really hard time with this because he would rather lock things down on his own. Now, again, we're asking what did this mean so we can ask what it means today for people who are hoping to be Advent people, for people who are hoping to hope the way that Christians hope, for people who are hoping to welcome the arrival of God in the, in the peculiar way that God arrives in Christ and to take advantage of what we learn about the arrival of God in Christ. And this text sets up a prophetic word to a king who's got a big military problem. And the promise he gets is the absurdity of a woman who's pregnant. It just seems kind of ludicrous, doesn't it? I mean, you even think of the, the, perhaps the vulnerability of a woman who's made more vulnerable in her pregnancy who's caring for two and not one, whose body is affected by carrying that baby, and like, that's the promise? Like, that's the response to all this? It seems kind of ludicrous, except it seems like that's exactly what this story is teaching us over and over and over and over again. There's a, a moment in the Christmas story in Luke that I think reiterates the opportunity of learning how to expect God in this peculiar way. A man named Simeon is mentioned in Luke 2. Maybe you haven't noticed this before, but this is, this is in that same part of Luke where the, the birth of Jesus is being told. And we read this. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, at this moment in the story, the Israelites are back in their homeland, technically speaking, but their homeland is occupied by a military superpower called the Romans. So, like, what's the point of being home if your house is occupied? right? In some ways, it's less home than being away from home because you're back in your land, but it's occupied by powers who don't give you the freedom that you have to be yourself in that place. And so the consolation of Israel, perhaps for Simeon, is um, gathering up all of the history of all of the ways that they have been abused and kicked around together uh, with the current moment when they're home, but it's not their home. And he's longing for all of that to change. That's a big expectation, 
right? I mean, that's an expansive desire that gets named here. And we read the Holy Spirit was on him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now hold on for a second. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations. Don't let the poetry like, cause you to forget the reality here too, right? What did he see? A baby. A baby. He saw a baby. Yeah. He saw a baby. And you know, he didn't even have a halo. Like this is pre-nativity scene Jesus, right? This is like actual flesh and blood Jesus. He saw a baby. This is a man longing for history to be made right in the world. This is a man longing for occupation to end for his people. This is a man longing for freedom for a whole nation that's been occupied. And he sees a baby and he says, my eyes have seen that you're gonna actually come through for us. That the salvation that we've been aching for for generations has actually arrived. And whether it's Isaiah and Ahaz or Simeon and baby Jesus or Jesus, like the adult, the teacher, it seems this is the message over and over again. Jesus says, are you longing for the kingdom of God? It'll come like a mustard seed, which in their imagination is the smallest seed they can think of. And it doesn't do anything. It just goes into the ground and gets buried. That's a pretty crappy hope. (laughs) And yet from that seed emerges this big and beautiful tree that shelters all forms of life within it. He stands at the beginning of his great sermon in Matthew 5, and he says, do you have a poverty within you? Like that place inside where you would hope to find joy and hope and goodness and energy and spirit. Do you look to that place and find nothing? He says, if you find yourself with that poverty within you, I call you blessed, because precisely in those circumstances, the kingdom of God is available. The arrival and the access to that enduring reality of God is is available where you find nothing. So it makes sense then that Isaiah would help us get ready for the arrival of Jesus because Jesus keeps saying, this is how God's kingdom actually works. I think this is incredibly important uh, for anybody in the year 2019 who like feels desperate for the consolation of humanity. Can we please fix this? God, would would you arrive and, and fix this? It feels like the human race is up against it sometimes right now, right? We are up against our own demons, our own worst impulses. We are up against uh, the broken things that we have built and the ways that we have of destroying the world. We are up against all of that. And it's natural, I think, to hope for a solution or a resolution that appears like it's commensurate with all the stuff that is aching and burning in the world. But again and again, God seems to be saying like the the breaking in of the life of God, it will always subvert those expectations of yours. It won't be as dramatic, emphatic, extraordinary as you hope. Most of the arrivals of God do not involve the building shaking and the roof getting lifted off the top. Most of the arrivals of God do not have the clouds being rolled back and the whole world standing in awe. Most of the arrivals of God in Scripture come in seemingly insignificant ways. And people who want to learn how to welcome the arrival of God, not just for our devotional experience, but so that we can put the world back together, have to become the kind of people who have the same vision that Simeon had, who are able to see the arrival of God in seemingly insignificant places 
and ways. As your pastor, let me tell you, um, one of the things I think I am sensing in our church uh, is a bit of activist fatigue. One of the things I love about our church is it's full of people who care. It's full of people who weep with the world and fight for the world and show up for the world and who are trying to fix things in the world. I love that about this church. And one of the things I'm sensing right now is a bit of activist fatigue. When you're awake and you're aware that the system is broken, it can feel like you're pushing a boulder up a hill and it just keeps rolling back on you, right? Like the thing's bigger than all the energy that you have to fix it. Uh, one of the examples uh, that helps me kind of see this in our community, I want to share this, but promise me you won't hear any guilting in this. You promise me? Promise? Okay. I mean it. There's no shame or guilting in this, but one of the signs I've seen is a thing that we tried to do this month. So, um, so many of us are aware uh, that we have homeless uh, neighbors, brothers and sisters, uh, members of Southland City Church, and just neighbors right here in the neighborhood, right? We have a lot of people who don't have a home in South Bend. And uh, one of the ways that we try to show up for that is to join with partners uh, to help out with a weather amnesty during the coldest months when things are just terribly unsafe for people who don't have shelter, right? And so our commitment as a church was that uh, one week of each month of the winter, we'll take on a two-hour window each evening just to show up to volunteer staff that, to welcome people and to make sure they can get settled okay. And so it's, it's super easy, it's super accessible, it takes a couple hours. And uh, we're a church of roughly 1,000 people. Um, not every week, because believe it or not, some people don't come to church every week. Modern life is what it is. So, but like in the course of a month from what we can tell, there's something like a thousand people who were like, this is my church, I'm in. Like I belong to this, I believe in this, I'm here, right? Something like a thousand people. And we try to staff like four or five bodies a night for one week and we barely came up with it. I'm not shaming that, I'm not guilting that, I'm not trying to hammer that. If right now you're thinking, I better sign up because I feel guilty. Don't sign up because you feel guilty. I'm not trying to trigger that for you. I'm just trying to have an honest like, check-in. Like, how are we doing? I think we're tired, yeah. I think there's just a lot of fights that we are fighting. And it gets worse when you feel like the intervention is so small and the problems are so big. It can be hard to show up when the problems seem massive and all we have is something that feels vulnerable, little, you know? But I'm saying the reason that we do that is, is not because we are naive, but we, like, we actually have a theology that is littered throughout the pages of Scripture, and it is sort of vibrating in the life of Jesus. Like, you can't get away from it if you pay attention to it, that the way that God arrives and the way that things change is it almost always starts with something that seems insignificant. That's just baked into the operating system of the kingdom of God. And Christmas people, Advent people, people who want to hope actively have to become the kind of people who see the way that Simeon saw and who have some way of knowing that in a seemingly insignificant package is the hope of the world. Now, um, with that as a backdrop, I want to turn briefly uh, to uh, talk about one part of our Christmas offering that we haven't named yet. 
And it's kind of an announcement. I'm very excited. I want to share with you the results of a year of work that our team has done. So for what might feel like the most awkward pivot in preaching history, let me go there for a minute. But I promise this actually all connects, right? So if you remember a year ago at Christmas, we said that we were going to use 2019 to scout and to ask, are there any places and ways that South Bend City Church should show up beyond South Bend? Because till this point, we haven't really done anything like that. We've given money to World Vision, which has been important, but we haven't really shown up outside South Bend as a community. But we call ourselves a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And so we, we decided it's time to start asking, what does the world look like for us, right? Now, if you've been around church for a little while, you might realize there are some ways that churches often show up in the world, like when they go to other places. So one of the ways that Christians often show up in other places in the world is evangelistically. Right? Like we got, we got good news to share. Like we got a good word about God. We, we want to tell you about Jesus. Now, this is a natural thing to do if you believe what this community believes about God, about what's happening in Jesus. And that can be a really good thing to do. However, it's just been our observation that so often when Christians, especially from the West, especially from the developed world, show up in other places in the world evangelistically, there's just this temptation baked into that project which is to see ourselves as the people with all the answers and the people in other places as the people with all the need and to show up to fix them, to see them as a problem that has to be solved, right? And the, and the thing about why we wouldn't probably go that direction is hopefully if you've been here on a Sunday at South and City Church, you know, we don't even see like people here that way, right? Like our baseline is everyone an icon, everybody a carrier of God's image. And so our, our baseline isn't to see anybody as a project, but everybody as a gift. And we just thought about like moving out into the world into other places. We want to be mindful that we don't pivot toward a posture that's not true to who we are, right? So there's that way of showing up in the world. Another way that churches often show up in the world, and I affirm this through and through, is to do like relief work. Because there are crisis level needs in the world that need Christians to show up and do the thing that we said we were here to do, which is to help where there's a need, right? Now, here's the thing about showing up for re relief, though, which is, like, I've been to some of the places in the world where we would probably want to send our dollars or even our people, places where need is, is the greatest, like the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, where there are millions of Syrian refugees who've been made utterly vulnerable by that war. The thing about showing up in those places is, like, I, I was there in Lebanon with Rich Stearns from World Vision, and we're walking around these Syrian refugee encampments together, and he's showing me all the work that happens and how important it is, and then he says to me, he says, you do, you do see why you can't bring your church here, right? I mean, between um, the security sensitivity of those places and the vulnerability of the people in those encampments who are not there to be gawked at or like um, seen through a religious tourist lens or, or ISIS in the next village over, like, it's like you, you realize why this isn't like a wide open and easily accessible thing for a community like yours to show up for, right? I said, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. He said, you know what, we could use those, your money. <laughs> and I affirm that. And that's why we continue to give, like just give the cash because there are professionals in those places who know what those people need. And one of the things that we should do is show up with our money. And so we're gonna keep doing that kind of thing, right? However, that still leaves us wondering, what does it mean for us to show up who we are as a church? Like as a community, to show up not just with our money, but with our bodies, our lives, our stories. And, and what we've been thinking about this year is that there's a, at least one more way of showing up in the world that is deeply Christian, 
Um, it's, it's, it shows up over and over when the church has been at her best. This is one of the ways she shows up in the world. And I think it's deeply faithful to who we feel called to be. And this way of showing up is to learn and collaborate in peace. To learn and collaborate in making peace in the world. Now, if you're here making peace and you feel like you're at a Miss America contest, if it feels kind of naive, like I just want world peace, let's just make peace in the world, I get it. It can feel naive, and sometimes it's done in really naive ways. In places where there's real conflict, I'm talking about real conflict, factional division where people are against each other, those can feel like the places where we need massive solutions because the problems are so big and that's why I think those are precisely the right places for followers of Jesus to show up and trust that often it starts small. So uh, 10 years ago, I took my first trip to the Middle East, and it was a conflict immersion experience where uh, the people I was traveling with were experts at exposing us to the depth of the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And that, and that trip broke me open, and it almost ruined me. I got really, really frustrated at what I saw there. And the first feeling I had is there's no way this gets better. The problems are too big. There's no way that peace breaks into a situation like that. But then the other thing they do on the trip is they expose you to actual, real-world, everyday peacemakers who are saying, we're going to hope for systemic change, we're going to work for it, we're going to vote for it. But in the meantime, we're not waiting for it to, to live out the way of peace right now. So here's a little example of something I saw. If you know anything about Israel and Palestine, you know that there's this thing called the Gaza Strip. Gaza is a Palestinian territory that's bordered by the Mediterranean Sea, Israel, and Egypt. It's that little strip along, along the, the sea there. Uh, many people call it the world's largest open-air prison. There's a blockade that stops all flow of supplies in and out. They try to build tunnels, but the problem with tunnels is that food comes in, but so do weapons. And because they've created such a desperate situation there, by the way, that always fuels the extremists. The more desperate you create the situation, it always just leads to the worst people being in charge. So what's happened in Gaza is the extremists have taken over and they're very militant in their approach to the conflict with Israel. So often what will happen is that Palestinian militants will launch shoulder-mounted sh shoulder rockets indiscriminately over that wall, intending them to land on civilian communities on the Israeli side of the border. And they do land on civilian communities on the Israeli side of the border. So on the trip, we, we go uh, to one of these Israeli towns. It's called Starot. And everywhere you look, there's every, every playground for a kid's school has a bomb shelter access on it. There are sirens that sound, and when the sirens sound, you have 15 seconds to get someplace safe before a bomb lands somewhere. On your street corner, on your home, on your school, uh, on your place of worship. And so we go to Starot, and we go into the bomb shelters, and we see the shrapnel of the, the weapons that have fallen on their community. But we also hear from people there who believe, it, like, we're gonna, we're gonna live in some kind of, we're gonna create some kind of harmony with our Gazan neighbors right now. So what do they do? They create a link, a digital link between people in Gaza and people in Starot. And by the way, most of the people in Gaza don't want these bombs to fall any more than most Israelis want bombs to fall on the Gazans. It's, it's the extremists, it's the worst parts of those communities that are doing these things. But everyday people are like, well, what do we do? We're gonna set up a Skype video link and when the bombings are happening, we're going to open up that line. And we're going to get a cluster of Gazan fathers and mothers and kids to sit in front of that screen with a cluster of Israelis over on this side of the wall. And like, as the bombs fly, and as the worst parts of our society rain hell on the worst parts of your society, we're going we're gonna to like do something about this. We're going to get to know each other. We're going we're gonna to sit and we're going to say, like, hey, tell, tell us about the school that the terrorists just hit. We want to know the names of the kids who suffered so that we can weep with you across this wall, so that we can pray with you 
across this wall. The Israelis can ask the, the Palestinians in Gaza, they can say, tell us about the last indiscriminate raid that the IDF committed against you and all the kids that died as collateral damage while they tried to go after the terrorists. Tell us their names, we wanna pray for them. We wanna know them. And like right there, you're like, look, this may not today solve the big stuff, but don't you dare think that that's not a little breaking in of peace. Like, don't you, don't you dare think that that's not the kind of stuff that we can do even when the systems are still broken and we're still trying to figure out how to put them back together. And in 2010, like, I, I would say I became a Christian all over again, but in a different kind of way. Because I, be, I began to actually ask Jesus, if, I, if I'm your student, if I'm here to learn a way of being human in the world, and some of the stuff that's the worst in our world is conflict, do you have anything to say to it, Jesus? Are you just here for my personal piety project? Or do you have anything to say like for the bigger stuff? And what I began to discover is he has lots of stuff to say about the bigger stuff. And Christians for centuries have been working out what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of actual conflict. And um, by the way, if you think we don't have conflict in South Bend, you're not paying attention. So we thought, what if we showed up in a few places in the world to learn and partner in the way of peace? And then we could bring that back here to South Bend and, and see what it inspires for us right here in our city where there's all kinds of conflict that we could be students and practitioners of the way of peace because that's part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So uh, this is a long backdrop to say that uh, we're really excited uh, to use Christmas offering to help us get this going, that for the next couple of years, we would like to pilot some projects uh, with a group called the Telos Group. Telos Group, that's the group I've been traveling with for about a decade. Uh, in the last year, uh, other members of our staff team have gotten the chance to travel and experience Telos as a team and to hear about their philosophy. Uh, Telos's mission is to form and equip communities of peacemakers to heal intractable conflict. Sounds kind of big, doesn't it? <laughs> but most of how they do it is everyday life, everyday stories, everyday interventions that they'll expose us to, interventions in other places that we can stand in solidarity with, and then ways that we can come home and figure out what it means right here in South Bend. Uh, if, if we're able to do this, if we're able to fund this, uh, we imagine in the next couple of years, there'll be opportunities for peacemaking pilgrimages to a number of places. Um, perhaps the most accessible opportunity would be right here in the United States and the American South. Uh, we, we have so much to grapple with right here in the United States, but of course, uh, one of the things at the top of that list is our own history of racial injustice. And so this is a chance to go to places like Selma, to go on a bit of a pilgrimage, to pay attention to, to give witness to what we have done and where we have come from so that we can think and work harder for where we're going. Uh, there's also an opportunity there to go to Northern Ireland, uh, which feels like a great sort of synergy with our friends at Redeemer Church, Dave, that you're gonna hear from in two weeks. Uh, just to show up there and to understand what's happening. Um, if you've heard of the Troubles, which is a sort of euphemism for the violence that happened in Northern Ireland, and if you're paying attention right now, you might know that Brexit threatens to while all that up again. If you don't get that, just Google Northern Ireland Brexit. You'll learn a lot very quickly, right? Uh, but then also the chance to go to Israel and Palestine and to see there what conflict looks like, but more importantly, to see there what peacemaking looks like. And to sit with Jewish and Muslim and Christian communities and to learn from them, be inspired by them. Every time I come back from those places, I get all lit up about the possibilities right here in South Bend. Because I go to places where the challenges are far more overt and yet I see people bravely and creatively deciding that they will walk and live in the way of peace right now. And we want to be a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And we don't want those to be cute little words on a logo. We want to like, live in the current of those things. Uh, so this is our strategy that we'd like to pilot over the next couple of years. And your Christmas offering will also help that happen.
Sound good? Yeah? Okay, cool. Uh, one more note before we light our last Advent candle of the season, which is if we go back to that moment when Jesus is born, uh, remember the Gospels are written from the perspective of people who knew the whole Jesus thing. The Gospels are written from the perspective of people who knew about his life and his death and his resurrection and the birth of the church. So the Gospels, when they tell the, the birth story of Jesus, they're written with all of the advantage of that later perspective. But go back with me for a moment to just a little while before Simeon sees Jesus in the temple and remember that most of the people walking around Bethlehem the day that Jesus was born, if anything, just knew that a baby had been born in somewhat irreputable circumstances. That's all they knew. Most of the people milling around Bethlehem that day, except for these weird Persian kings that came over from Iran, that's the Magi, right? And, uh, and some shepherds, like most of the people wandering around are just saying, ah, oh, the world's gone to crap and God's not doing anything about it, not knowing that this birth has just happened. And that it would be sort of the seeds that are planted that change the world and leave a wake behind. So if this Advent season your hope feels challenged and you're tired, first of all, you are not alone. You're in good company. And secondly, those of us who are longing for God to arrive uh, had better learn how to look for God in seemingly insignificant places because it seems that's almost always how he first shows up. If you're able, will you stand to your feet and we will light our last Advent candle of this season. And again, we've, uh, we've borrowed a prayer uh, from the church at large. This is a prayer that many Christians are praying today. And we'll offer this as our uh, sort of final sacrament of this Advent season as we pray. Shepherd of Israel, may Jesus, Emmanuel, and Son of Mary be more than just a dream in our hearts. With the apostles, prophets, and saints, save us, restore us, and lead us in the way of grace and peace that we may bear your promise into the world. We light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. So this Advent, may you remember the promise of the peaceable kingdom. May you look for all the ways that your swords and eye swords and that all of the instruments of violence would be transformed into peace. May you trust that the way of return will be paved with unexpected graces. May you find a way for your hope to run deeper than the politics of the moment. And may you learn to sense the arrival of God in the seemingly insignificant because it seems that's always how he begins. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you Christmas Eve.